Hey, welcome back to This One's a Doozy. I'm Kevin. And I'm Haley. And we talk about stories of mystery, true crime, and folklore of the unusual, unsettling, and oftentimes unsavory goings on of our world today, yesterday, and long ago. And we have arrived. We've made it. Yeah, We've it feels it. crazy for us. It does. So for the listener, this is our regular routine. It's right on track. No, nothing has changed. <laughs> for us, uh, we've been gone. I've been gone for a hot minute. And so we haven't recorded together in at Almost least two, two weeks. weeks. Yeah. yeah. Somewhere right, somewhere right, around, right around that. It's crazy. Yeah. So it's like we went from recording <laughs> like four episodes in three days or something like that <laughs> yeah. to n- nothing for two weeks, which is yeah, crazy. It's like my brain forgot how to, how to do this. Yes. But now we're back and we're fresh. We are. And we're ready. Well, I don't know how fresh I, I said I that like really. as I was yawning. So yeah, yeah. sorry about that. We're as fresh as, <laughs> as we probably could be at this point. <laughs> uh, unintentional irony oh from goodness. the outset. Yes. But it's time to ask the question mm. that everybody's asking. What are you drinking? So I'm trying to be good. I really wanted a Dr. Pepper. And I was like, I could get a regular Dr. Pepper <laughs> or a strawberries and cream, which sounds so good. Or... Hmm? I could get a diet Dr. Pepper. No, I'm going to go Dr. Pepper zero sugar, which is what I went with. It's fine. It'll do. Yeah. For being zero sugar, I'll take it. Yeah. But like, I do miss Dr. Pepper. Yeah, that's fair. The other day, your dad actually let me snag one of his uh, Dr. Pepper cream soda drinks Mm -hmm. that was zero sugar. And I was really surprised at how much I liked it. You know what? My both of my parents have like gone out of their way to tell me that. Yeah. Probably because I'm like cutting sugar and all that. Yeah. I'm like, hey, you should try this because it's crazy yeah. how good it is. Well, and I've had the Dr. Pepper cream soda, the regular one, and mm-hmm. I did not like it. Oh. So it was weird that they had that around and I tried it for whatever reason, just right. because and I was like, oh, this is way better than the one with sugar. Huh. Strangely enough. Isn't that weird? Yeah. Well, and on that same Wavelength, really. The hard seltzer game yeah. is high these days. And even though this is not my favorite hard seltzer, I'm drinking a pineapple truly tonight. Yeah, the trulies are good. Yeah. I'd I say they're like the I'd say they're fine. Like, yeah. I've had other things that I like more, but these are they're solid. And I'm not gonna not gonna complain about it other than that one anecdote about it. It's funny though, because both of us gave very honest reviews. <laughs> and both of us are wishing a little bit that we were drinking something else. Yes. But like, it's fine. <laughs> but they're good for what they are. Yeah. And I'll take it. I'll yeah. take it. And it's summertime and I'm trying to be be mindful of the things that I put into my body in the yeah. summertime. Oh, well, now that we know what we're drinking, the uh, next thing, this is, this is new. So for anybody who ha- is starting on this episode, we're in the middle of our summer shorts series. Mm-hmm. So these are shorter episodes that we're doing in the summertime for people to be able to binge listen or kind of listen in in quicker spurts, I guess, whatever you want sure. to say about it. And it's also for us helpful because we're just so dang busy. Right. Part of this is also taking a, a short detour from the feel-good fact of our usual episodes and instead giving you what, my love? A recommend slash do not recommend. That's right. So I'll give us a topic. One of us will recommend something and mm-hmm. the other will not recommend something. Yes. And so this time I was thinking of like, just like the home in general. It can be pretty broad. 
Mm-hmm. And so in my mind, I'm going to recommend keeping your living room somewhat low tech. Mm. So I grew up, and you know this, but I grew up without a TV in my living room. Yeah. We had one, we had TVs in other spaces in the home, right. but the living room was our space as a family to like talk, hang out, catch up yeah, and really fully be present. And I've ad- kind of adopted that, I suppose, mm-hmm. into our family's practice. Like I prefer not having a TV yeah. yes. in the living space. We caved. Kind of recently. Kind of recently. And yeah. we both regret it very much. Well, I wish we could unmount it. I don't regret it. I regret it. Okay, fair. We, we yeah, it's fine. That's fair. That's a different conversation for another podcast so, that we don't do. That's totally fine. <laughs> I recommend if you can go without a TV in your living space, mm-hmm. do it. That's a great recommendation. I concur. Not practical for everybody and that's okay. But if you can, if you can yeah. swing it, yeah. you should. Yeah. Well, I absolutely do not recommend <laughs> oh, no. laying tile over <laughs> flooring that you don't rip up at all. You just lay it on top of it. Oh, this is a very personal one just, to us. <laughs> just out of sheer laziness or whatever reason there is. So the story is we bought the house that we live in now, uh, whatever, five years ago. And nobody noticed until like two months that we were in or a month in of us living here that the flooring in the bathroom and in the kitchen is way higher than everywhere else in the house. Mm-hmm. And we were like, what is going on? And we moved the refrigerator or the dishwasher or something. Mm-hmm. And we realized that the the linoleum flooring was never pulled up to, to expose the subfloor. This is getting kind of in the weeds for some people, but it was never pulled up. They just tiled over it. So it's like a full like inch higher than it ought to be. Every guest ever trips yep. over that. Yes. I feel like you should probably give a not recommend that maybe applies to more people because I feel like most people don't do that. Well, you might be right. <laughs> However, in case someone is listening to this, they need to know. I do not recommend that you do that. Fair. So never do it. All right, my love. We have a story this week. You've got a story this week. You... It's hot off the press. It we is. We just finished working on it just a few hours ago. Yes. What do you got for us? So we have another true crime story this week. So we haven't covered a John or Jane Doe case in a while. And so I thought, let's go for that. On May 17th, 1968, a well digger by the name of Wilbur Riddle had arrived at a location off of Route 25 outside of Georgetown, Kentucky. So he had actually arrived early to his shift. And so instead of getting a head start on the project, Wilbur's boss had told him to just kill a little time until the rest of the crew arrived. He noticed that there was a crew of telephone line workers, which meant that there would be discarded glass telephone insulators, which one of his friends would use for his own projects. And as like a little side hustle, he would like mm. sell them for a couple dollars a piece. Yeah, yeah. And so he started walking around and picking those insulators up. As he did so, he came across a bundled up cloth tarp that was big and bulky, as though something large had been wrapped up inside of it. Wilbur walked up to the tarp and tapped on it with his foot. When he did, the bundle went rolling down a small embankment, which partially unwrapped the tarp. Immediately, Wilbur was struck with a strong smell of decay, as well as the partially exposed body of a person. Ooh. Stunned, Wilbur ran as fast as he could to the nearest gas station, where he phoned the police and told them that he had discovered a human body. Wow. This is the story of Tent Girl. That would be horrifying. Okay. Hang on, Kev. Tent Girl. This one's a doozy. Yeah. That name is 
very ominous. It is. It is ominous. Okay. And depressing a little yeah, bit. Yeah. So shortly after the discovery of the body wrapped in the cloth, Wilbur made a call to the Scott County Sheriff, Sheriff Bobby Vance, and police were quickly dispatched to the scene near Eagle Creek. When Sheriff Vance, Deputy Jimmy Williams, and Coroner Kenneth Grant arrived, Wilbur led them over to the tent-wrapped object. So the officers all noticed that they were smelling the very distinct smell of death. Quickly, they cut the rope securing the bundle. The tarp fell away and revealed, you know, what they all knew that they would find. Right, right, right. It's a deceased body. Yeah. When the officers took a look at the body, they noted that it was severely decomposed, making it very hard to gather a detailed description of the body. The body did appear to be female. Mm. She was nude completely with no jewelry, no personal effects really on her, a partial piece of cloth that was not the tarp. Mm. Um, But her eyes had been fully decomposed and her right hand was lifted up, indicating that this person had tried to claw their way out of the tent canvas before ultimately dying trapped inside. Oh, that's sad. Probably from suffocation. Oh. Very sad. Yeah. So the body was brought to St. Joseph's Hospital in Lexington, Kentucky, where Coroner Grant conducted an autopsy. Unfortunately, the body was too badly decomposed for the autopsy to reveal anything that would really help identify the remains. Mm -hmm. No eye color, obviously, no fingerprints or anything like that. Grant concluded that the body was a white female. She was somewhere around five foot, one inch in height, weighing in at around 110 to 115 pounds. Mm -hmm. She was likely between the ages of 16 and 19 years of age. Oh, no, that's really sad. Very young. So she had short reddish brown hair and a notable gap between her two front teeth, and that was pretty much all that they had to go off of at first. Hmm. A second autopsy was performed by Dr. Frank Cleveland, who concluded the same things as Grant had. Also, given the state of the remains, toxicology and other tests were unable to reveal a cause of death. So the assumption was that the victim had died due to suffocation, like they had originally thought. But they also discovered discoloration on the skull that could have been indicative of blunt force trauma. And so the working theory was that the victim was struck over the head and knocked out. Like, not hard enough to kill her, but hard enough to Hmm. make her unconscious. She was then likely wrapped in the canvas and rope while she was still alive dumped near the road, and then left to suffocate, which is just so awful. Like, very gut-wrenching. Yeah, One of the the torture, I mean, you're afraid. Yeah. You're, you can't move. You, at some point, you probably realize I'm going to die like this. Oh, gosh. Like, my brain goes to like, I really hope that she lost consciousness. Yeah. And it wasn't like till the bitter end, like a a struggle and a fight. It's just so sad. So one of the fingers of the victim was removed and soaked in a sort of chemical substance for roughly a week in order to rehydrate it. Hmm. This actually did end up working and the officers were able to gather a fingerprint. Hmm. They also brought in a sketch artist as an attempt to like kind of show the victim as they were in life as best as they could, like Mm -hmm. a facial reconstruction kind of sketch. Yeah. And so, yeah, that was what they had to start with. Wow. That's wow. That's a lot. And that's also what what time what, what when was when was this? Uh May 1968. I feel like that's pretty not necessarily super high tech, but maybe kind of high tech for the late 60s. Yeah, they they put a lot of work yeah. into attempting to ID this girl. Right. 
So police reached out to media with this story, hopeful that the public might be able to help identify the body and send her home to her family. Mm -hmm. The local media in the area, the Kentucky Post and the Times Star quickly dubbed the woman Tent Girl after the cloth that she was found wrapped in. So it was like fairly common for like carnival tents Mm -hmm. and things like that to be wrapped in this kind of, it's not like overly specific, but it was almost always what they would use to haul away things like a carnival tent. Yeah, sure. So that's, that's where she got the nickname. So for weeks, police received call after call from people believing that the missing girl was in fact their daughter, sister, friend, et cetera. Right. But one by one, each caller's hopes were dashed when it was ruled out that the remains did not match those of their missing loved one. Mm -hmm. On June 7th, 1968, a promising tip came in. Lieutenant Roberts received a phone call from Detective Sergeant Miller from up in Maryland. Sergeant Miller had seen an article about Tent Girl and cross-referenced it with missing persons reports, and he believed that he found a report that may be connected to Tent Girl. Oh, wow. So this was Debbie Crane. She was a young teenager who had gone missing on March 3rd, 1968, and was last seen getting into a vehicle with her boyfriend, 17-year-old Carl Colby, with a, quote, group of swingers, hippies, and undesirables, Mm. end quote. And she had not been seen since. The rumor mill back home was that Debbie and Carl, and Carl's older brother, had joined a group of free spirits that were heading down to Kentucky in search of adventure. Interesting. Yeah. Debbie had also recently gotten into narcotics like shortly before her disappearance. And so her family were very concerned about her for several reasons. Right. Right. And they were kind of thinking like she's acting out of character. Like she normally wouldn't right. get in a car with strangers, but the drug use has been kind of influencing a yeah, lot of her decisions. Her, lately. Yep. Yeah. So Debbie matched the physical description of tent girl. So Roberts asked Miller to get in contact with the crane family to see if they could come down to Kentucky to take a look at the remains and see if they belonged to Debbie. Meanwhile, her dental records were compared with tent girls and they were very similar. They were not a perfect match, but I mean, they're like, okay, this is something. So they've decided to continue following up on the lead. Debbie's mother, Velma, and her aunt came down to Kentucky on June 13th, 1968, but were unable to make a positive ID due to the state of their remains. A national alert was sent out on the Colby brothers, which prompted plenty of additional tips, especially when it was believed that the Colbys could be connected to the tent girl case. Mm. So the public was starting to put it, put it together as well as law enforcement. Wow. One tip that came in from a trucker reported that there were two hitchhikers walking down the very highway where tent girl would be found in mid May of that year, Mm -hmm. right around the same time. Yeah. And so this was looking like it could potentially be the answer they'd been looking for. Right. Right. But it was not to be. On June 17th, a tip came from an anonymous caller from Pennsylvania stating that they'd seen Debbie and Carl and that the two had recently been married. They were alive and well in Bradford, Pennsylvania, according to this caller. Hmm. Sergeant Miller traveled to Bradford and verified this anonymous tip to be true, which was great for the cranes. Yeah. Like they found Debbie. She's safe. She's alive. Right. But not so great for police in Kentucky right. investigating Still tent Still trying girl. to figure this out. Yeah. Right. So reaching the end of their options, Kentucky police sent the tent canvas and the rope that the body was tied in to the FBI's labs up in Washington to see if they could figure out anything useful, like yeah. manufacturers and things like that, to try and narrow down where the killer may have bought the items. But this, too, turned up nothing. Hmm. Both the canvas and the rope were run-of-the-mill pieces that could have been purchased at just about any hardware store. A fresh lead popped up shortly after. The body of a 16-year-old girl named Candace Clothier was found by fishermen 
up in Northampton, Pennsylvania back in March. And the circumstances surrounding this discovery were extremely similar to Tent Girl. Hmm. So Candace was a young, petite girl with brown hair. She was also found nude, wrapped in green canvas, exactly like the kind used to tie circus tents and rope, just like Tent Girl. Yeah. Oh, no. So she had been wrapped in the canvas and tied up, likely when she was still alive. She had the same dark discoloration at the top of her head, meaning she was also likely struck over the head, mm-hmm. wrapped up alive before being dumped near a decently trafficked road. Like right. there were so many similarities. As these things go, especially before the digital age, leads would come and go and would continue to run dry. Police were desperate to solve this case. So they sent the story of Tent Girl off to Master Detective, a popular magazine who ran a full profile of the story of Tent Girl and the investigation bent on figuring out who she was and what had happened to her. So I kind of love the idea of Master Detective (laughs) because it's kind of in a lot of ways, it's true crime content. Yeah. Just 60s style, you know. It's well, it sounds like exactly what it is. Yeah. It's like That's the exactly same what it place is. to consolidate these stories, to share them, to maybe even find like find additional leads mm-hmm. about them. That's what they were hoping. Yeah, because we we've heard some true crime podcasts out there that because they covered a story, it sparked interest mm-hmm. in that story and helped find more leads and mm-hmm. information. Right. So it's the same thing just 60 years ago. Right. Crazy. And it actually did lead to more leads, more opportunities to compare fingerprints and dental records of other missing persons, but still no answers came. Dang. So since she was so badly decomposed, Tent Girl was unable to be embalmed. And so she was eventually laid to rest in a quiet plot in the Georgetown Cemetery, initially in a grave marked only number 90. But when locals heard about it, they banded together and purchased a headstone. It read, quote, Tent Girl, found May 17th, 1968 on U.S. Highway 25 North, died about April 26th to May 3rd, 1968. Age, about 16 to 19 years. Height, 5 feet, 1 inch. Weight, 110 to 115 pounds. Reddish brown hair, unidentified, end quote. Mm. So that's very Lady of the Dunes. Yes, it, it is. It has that same has feeling that same where feeling. it's like— that's how I- was thinking of there's the dignity of her receiving a burial and people caring enough to purchase her a headstone. But then there's that very somber kind of slap in the face of just her description. We don't have anything we can say about her. We don't know who she is, right? you know, which is more than plot number 90. Yes, it is. Well, and people for a long time would visit it and that would kind of like re spark the conversation. Yeah. And people still, not to spoil anything, but they still visit that gravesite today. Yeah. That has yeah. that still on there. So. Oh, wow. That actually doesn't spoil anything. It sounds okay. like it does, but it doesn't. <laughs> so, and with that, the case did run cold. Despite this, plenty of people still cared deeply about figuring out who this young girl was and giving her her name back and her family some closure. Mm-hmm. One such person was a guy named Todd Matthews. Todd was dating a young woman by the name of Lori Riddle, who he would eventually go on to marry. And if the last name Riddle sounds familiar, it's because Lori is the daughter of Wilbur Riddle, the man who discovered Tent Girl's body. Oh, sure. So decades after his discovery of Tent Girl, Wilbur retired and moved to Livingston, Tennessee, where he raised a family of his own. Todd was 17 years old at this time. And as soon as Wilbur told him and Lori the story of Tent Girl, Todd was pretty much immediately obsessed. 
This girl had a mom and a dad. She had friends, family. She had dreams and hopes. She had a life that was stolen from her. Yeah. And she deserved to be known for who she was in life, not just the nickname given to her after a cruel and untimely death. So like this to me strikes me as like you and I have certain cases that keep us up, that yeah. we think about it. There are certain for cases sure. I can think of right now off the top of my head that I will always think about and they mean something to me. And this was that for Todd. He was very much engrossed in her story as soon as he heard it. Wow. Yeah. Even as a teenager. So being the early 90s at this time, the internet was slowly blossoming into the machine that we know it to be today. In the years that followed Todd first hearing the story, this case occupied so much of his time that it actually put a very real strain on his marriage because he would be like up combing the internet oh, all wow. night. Yeah. He spent time looking over the original case documents and noted a few things that he found to be inconsistent. Mainly that he did not think that Tent Girl was between age 16 and 19. When she was discovered, there was that small cloth that was found wrapped in the canvas with her, and Todd believed that it was a burp cloth, and that Tent Girl was possibly in her 20s and a mother. Oh, wow. Yeah, he's like, she's, she's small in stature, but that looks like a burp cloth to me. Yeah. So he wrote letters to the original investigators, the coroners, urging them to exhume the body and examine the pelvis to see if she'd had any children. Wow. He drove 200 miles to visit her grave and spoke with the undertaker who had handled her burial. Mm -hmm. He had written to newspapers and talked to anyone and everyone that he could possibly think of. But still, this yielded no answers. So finally, he decided to create a website about the case, tentgirl.com. A few tips would come to him via email from the website, but in January of 1998, almost a full 30 years since the discovery of Tent Girl, yeah. Todd would come across a post on a missing persons forum that would change everything. It was a missing persons post shared by a woman named Rosemary Westbrook about her sister, Barbara Ann Hackman Taylor. The post read, Lexington, 1967, missing. My sister Barbara has been missing from our family since the latter part of 1967. She has brown hair, brown eyes, is around five foot two inches tall, and was last seen in the Lexington, Kentucky area. If you have any information, please contact me at the address posted, end quote. Hmm. So it was late at night when Todd made this discovery, and there was something about this post. It was like he instinctively knew that this was his girl. Oh, wow. He was so excited that he ran into his bedroom and woke up Lori, exclaiming, Lori, wake up. I found her. He was oh so pumped gosh. up. Yeah. He just knew. <laughs> so Todd called Rosemary and told her everything that he knew about the Tent Girl case and that he believed that Tent Girl might be her sister, Barbara. Rosemary told Todd that Barbara was 24 years old at the time that she went missing. She was a mother of a young daughter as well as of a stepchild fathered by her husband, a man named George Earl Taylor, or Earl. Sure. So Earl was a traveling carnival worker, and the two had lived in Florida together. Rosemary was only 10 at the time that her sister had gone missing, and she was reported missing in Florida, not oh. in Kentucky. Which, if you think about it, mm. this stuff was not digital right, at the time. Right. This was like— You have to like stumble upon codex. all the papers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yes. So when Barbara's family were finally able to get in contact with Earl after not hearing from Barbara for an unusual amount of time, he informed them that she had run off with another man, leaving him and the children behind which this was like not like her at mm. all. She was a devoted mother and was so in love with her children that even if she had met somebody else, there's no way that she would just run off. Right. But their hands were pretty tied. 
There was not really anything that they could do unless they heard from Barbara themselves, which after that point, they never did. Right. In the months, I didn't write this, but in the months leading up to her going missing, she was saying a lot of very strange things about Earl. Like there was a lot of tension. She was a little bit afraid. He had been previously married. Yeah. And that wife also, quote, ran off with another man. Oh. Mm Mm-hmm. Ooh, okay. So, and I I don't know how much of the traveling she would do with him Mm -hmm. for the carnival stuff, but he was all over the U.S. traveling. And there were more cases similar to Tent Girl, like we just talked about with Candace. Uh Uh-huh. So. Oh, no. There are some assumptions that we're making here. Sure. There was not really anything that her family could do unless they heard from her. And they never did. So Rosemary kind of grew up with the shadow of grief and uncertainty hanging over the heads of herself and her family, always wondering and never truly knowing what had actually happened to Barbara and if they'd ever see her again. Rosemary agreed to do a cheek swab to collect her DNA, and the body of Tent Girl was exhumed to sample as well. Samples from each of the women were run and compared, and it was a match. Tent Girl was Barbara Ann Hackman. Wow. Since the family believed that Earl was responsible for her death, they opted to omit Taylor from her new gravestone when she was buried in the same plot at the Georgetown Cemetery, this time with her full name and date of birth, which was September 12th, 1943. It went on to say, death, December 7th, 1967. Loving mother, grandmother, and sister. Oh. So it's a more complete... Yeah headstone, you know? So the problem was that Earl had died from cancer in 1987. And so there was not really any way to confirm the theory that he'd killed Barbara, wrapped her in the tent canvas, potentially from his workplace at the carnival, and then dumped her body. But Todd, Rosemary, and countless others believe that this is the most likely scenario. Sure. So when asked about Todd's work on the case, his father-in-law, Wilbur, said, quote, he has put in more than a thousand hours on this case. There's no law enforcement office that worked harder on any case than he did on this one, end Mm. quote. So this really was a defining thing for Todd. Yeah. It like kind of awakened a passion that he didn't know he had until he started venturing down the road of identifying Tent Girl. Mm -hmm. He went on to join the Doe Network, a national database of missing persons cases online. He was also part of forming the group uh, EDAN, Everyone Deserves a Name which is a volunteer group of sketch artists and sculptors who offer their talents in rendering top-tier facial reconstruction sketches, molds, etc. of John and Jane Doe's in hopes of helping to identify them and sending them home. He also went on to work for many years as the Southeast Regional Director at the National Missing and Unidentified Person System, or NamUs, which works alongside law enforcement in identifying John and Jane Doe's. Wow, that makes me really emotional. All of the things you just said. He's a really special all, guy. Wow. Really Any cool piece things. you can read about Todd Matthews, please go do it. He's a really special guy. Hmm. So while this case remained cold for 30 years, the care and determination of one of the first internet sleuths finally closed the book and gave Tent Girl her name back. Barbara Ann Hackman will always be remembered for being beautiful, smart, and an incredible and loving mother. And that is what I have for you today. Wow. Oh my gosh. I wasn't expecting to get all emotional about it because I'm like, I'm not crying, but I'm on like the verge of it. I'm like, oh, that's yeah. like so, it's just really touching. Yeah. So, wow. I think that the work of groups like Namus and Eden and things like that are, it's just priceless 
yeah. and how important it is. It's, Absolutely. And I love that people have, you know, I feel like we've talked about this before. I'm not going to grandstand or anything, but in true crime, it's easy to just consume it mm-hmm. and not like necessarily be moved by it. Mm-hmm. And so I personally am very moved when I see people saying, oh my gosh, I have this skill that actually could make a difference. Right. And so, yeah, well, it's, and it's, these are artists and people who maybe even don't make as much money as they should for their art. Mm-hmm. And yet they still give it away mm-hmm. and, and serve people with it, which is really meaningful. And man, the thing that really caught me right, right when you said it was, um, when it says on her gravestone, loving mother, grandmother and sister. Mm-hmm. And like, she, she never got to be a grandmother, She, but she is one. Yeah. And it's like very, like almost jarring to think of it like that, but mm. really, really crazy and, and meaningful. So yeah. yeah. It's a lot of depth <laughs> right in the very last little bit of this episode, mm-hmm. a lot of depth and, and meaningfulness. So yeah, yeah for wow. sure. Well, everybody, thank you so much for listening to the unusual, unsettling, and unsavory story today. If you haven't already, please make sure that you're subscribed to this podcast on your favorite listening platform and that you leave a glowing five-star review. Uh, even if you're not sure how to do it, there, there's there's ways on basically all these platforms to leave a review. Those reviews, specifically the five-star runs, uh, they help other people who listen to podcasts like this to find this one. So please take a, take an extra 30 seconds to go find that and leave that review. Also make sure that you are following us on social media. We're on Instagram and TikTok at this one is a doozy. And on Facebook, this one's a doozy podcast. Lastly, you can connect with us even more directly by joining us over on Patreon. My love, why don't you tell them about Patreon? Yes, you can follow the link in our Instagram bio or in our Facebook about section, or you can go to patreon.com slash doozypod. And for $5 a month, you can support our show. Supporters on Patreon also get access to all of our content ad-free, as well as two bonus episodes per month that are exclusive to Patreon. Nice. Love that. We, I know I say this kind of frequently, some of my favorite things that we've done have been on Patreon. Mm. So don't miss out. Jump in. Enjoy. And with that, we will see you next week for another doozy. Thank you. Bye. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.